Well, imagine this uh, situation. This has played out so many times, it's countless. Mum or dad says to their little boy or little girl, hey, Mary, hey, Johnny, what do you want to be when you grow up? You've heard that situation, haven't you? Some of you are thinking, I still haven't worked out what I want to be when I grow up. You know, that's pretty common. I've been talking to 50-year-olds and 60-year-olds have been saying the same thing. What do you want to be when you grow up? I remember my parents, when I was young, saying that to me well before I had any clue about what I could do when I grew up. I would have been six or seven, I suppose. Uh, And Dad said to me, Jason, you, you are going to be the builder of the family. Okay. Russell, you're going to be the plumber. Andrew, you're going to be the electrician. Mum and Dad had it all sorted out, right? We are going to build a house and they were going to get it on the cheap. That's what we were going to do. And I remember my brother Russell, after being told, you're going to be a plumber, he said, I don't want to be a plumber. I don't want to pick plums all my life. (laughs) No idea. And really cute, right? Uh, Little kids, we ask them that question because it is really cute when they answer it. They're so full of optimism and hope. Uh, They just sort of give you this great idea about what they could be with no idea. We grow up and we see the real world, don't we? And all of what mum and dad said just sort of fades into the background. You go, oh, work. Work is hard. That youthful optimism fades away for everyone except one group. I have to ask if that group is here tonight. Are there any recruiters here? Any recruiters? Good. No recruiters here. We can uh, talk about them. (laughs) I haven't met any recruiters across all of St. George North. So there you go. Recruiters keep youthful optimism all their life because it's their job. Recruiters will come to you and say, oh, a career with us will bring out your best. Yeah, right. And they'll say, join us and let your passion become your career. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Uh, Recruiters love this quote. This is uh, Steve Jobs talking to John Scully, who he managed to get to come from Pepsi to work for Apple. He said to to him, do you want to sell sugared water all your life? Or do you want to come with me and change the world? And don't you just want to? Don't you want to go and work for Apple and change the world? Where do I sign up? It sounds wonderful. But of course, work is never what it's cracked up to be. It's hard. Even if you like it, it's hard. It's monotonous. It's stressful. It'll consume at least a third of your waking life. That'll depress you. And so with this in mind, you'll have to be worried because... God made you to work. God made you to work. That's concerning. Now, in your outline, you'll see I've put a whole lot of uh, little Bible verses. To save flipping all the way today, you can look at that and refer to that, and then I'll direct you when I want you to flip. So let's have a look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God made you to work. God blessed humanity. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Uh, There it is. There's our God-given mandate to work. But then you contrast that with the challenges of work that we face. And you think, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like the work I am doing. We have serious questions to ask. And so today we're going to dig into why is work often so futile? Why is it often so hard? Then next week we'll get practical. Next week, we'll say, well, what does being a Christian do for me as a worker? So that's where we're going. Today, why is work so futile? So we go to Ecclesiastes. Now, if you ever want a sort of blunt reality check, turn to Ecclesiastes. I encourage you to read all the way through. Uh, The teacher of Ecclesiastes, he says, what's the point of life? And he goes and investigates. 
And he checks out all different options. In chapter 2, he's working out whether there is meaning to be found in your work. So let's see what he says. Chapter 2, verse 4. I increased my achievements. I built houses and I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself and I planted every kind of fruit in them. I constructed reservoirs of water for myself to irrigate a grove of flourishing trees. I I acquired male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I also owned many herds of cattle and flocks, more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. I also amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. This teacher, he threw himself in, didn't he? He worked hard, he got to the top. He was that wealthy landowner that people want to be. He reached the top and he was prosperous. And when he had all of that, what does he conclude? Verse 18, I hated all my work that I labored at under the sun. I often say to my kids, hate is a very strong word. You shouldn't use hate. But he got to the top and he hated it. And it seems right. He toiled away and there was no point. That's what he found. So, so why does he hate it? Verse 18, it carries on. Because I must leave it to the man who comes after me. So he realized that no matter how hard you work, no matter what you achieve, you can't take it with you. You die and the pile of stuff that you've built goes off to someone else to be enjoyed by them. And so the teacher has a theological problem. God made me to work, but all my toil means nothing. Why is that? Well, there's a problem that stems right back to the beginning. We can't ignore the effects of the fall. Now, you remember Adam and Eve. They turned away from God. They rebelled against God. They said to God's good ordering, no, we, we know better than that. And so their sin, on behalf of really all of us, had consequences. So if you have a look at the verses in your outline from Genesis 3, the ground is cursed because of your sin. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, for you are dust and you will return to the dust. Now, we have a modern crass expression that expresses the same idea. We say, work sucks, then you die. Don't we say that? Work sucks, then you die. He, why is that? Now, whether people know it or not, it is because of human sin. Work sucks, then you die because of sin. We gave up on God and we said, you know what? We can find our own meaning. We'll even go to work and find our meaning in our work. Well, the teacher discovered that disconnection with God, it doesn't end well. So verse 21, I began to give myself over to despair concerning all my work that I'd labored at under the sun. Uh, Maybe you have thought like that about your work. Have you ever despaired at the end of the day? Have you ever despaired about what it is that you have to do? Uh, As I reflect upon my 10 years I was talking about in the city, It is very tempting to despair. I worked three jobs and the sum was zero. I'll tell you what they were. ABC television, I worked in the analog TV days. They switched it to digital. They just went click and all my software, irrelevant from that day on. But they just moved on. I moved on to another company. I worked for them writing software, sort of that you put in a box and you sell to companies for logistics. 
Then our company had this wonderful idea. They said, Jason, you're more valuable to us if we just send you out and charge you out for lots of money and we can make heaps of money out of you rather than selling a packaged software off the shelf. I moved on. I worked at St. George Bank for five years, went off to more college, and a friend of mine rang me up in second year. I remember this really clearly. He rang me up and he said, guess what, Jason? Westpac just bought us. Our model has been shelved. Five years of work, gone. Ten years of work, the sum is nothing. If I am the product, if I am the sum of my work, I am nothing. That's despairing as I look back. Maybe you have felt like that about your work. If you haven't, well, just work long enough, really. You'll understand the teacher's despair. So the teacher in Ecclesiastes, he says, all right, I'm despairing. What I'm going to do is try and find ways for meaning in my work. And he attempts three different paths. All of them turn out to be false paths. So we're going to have a look at those paths. False path number one. He says, there is value in what I produce. He says, I am what I produce. Now, at first glance, it doesn't seem too bad. Proverbs 16, 26 tells us, a worker's appetite works for him because his hunger urges him on. Uh, he's saying, if you want to eat, you've got to work. The product you, you have will mean that you can eat and you won't starve. Wonderful. The problem is we go way beyond that, don't we? Remember our Luke 12 reading? That ugly situation, a real-world situation, happens all the time. Siblings fighting over the inheritance. Fighting over mum and dad's stuff when they're dead. Jesus says, watch out. Be on guard against all greed because one's life is not found in the abundance of his possessions. And he tells that great story of the building of barns and the filling them up. He points out their error. He says, how do you know you're not going to die? You put all the stuff in the barns and then you pass away and someone else gets it. They'll probably just chuck it in the tip anyway. They don't want it. It's your old stuff. His point was that earthly treasure doesn't matter. What matters is if you're rich towards God. Now that should scare all of us. We should be really worried. Because think about our economic system. We're supposed to buy. We're supposed to consume. We live in a world that says you consume and you consume and you build the economy and that'll be great for all of us. Of course, it can't last forever. Our world says get your barns and fill them up with stuff and then when they're full, get that stuff, put it out on council cleanup and get new stuff and do that every three to six months over and over again. Consume and consume and consume. The teacher and Jesus Say, don't find your value in what you produce. You will die. And that barn of stuff will go off to someone else. Okay, that's a false path. A futile false path, number one. Okay, let's try something different. Uh, Perhaps work is who I am. I am what I do. If I'm a doctor, I am a doctor. That's really how you define me. Remember we asked our kids, uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? We're just feeding into this idea that what you do is who you are when you grow up. We reinforce it, which is why I reckon we have to jazz up our job titles. I don't know if you have a sort of jazzed up job title, but I've seen a few around the place. Um, Some of you know I'm not a big fan of Apple, but I love their free Wi-Fi, so I go into the store every now and again. I was shocked the first time I walked in there, and a genius came to help me. A genius! Fancy that! You know, genius is tech support. 
It's not a genius. Another company I've heard about has a director of first impressions. What do you reckon that is? Who knows what that is? Director of first impressions is the receptionist. Well done, the receptionist. You know, a barman will call himself the beverage dissemination officer or the housewife domestic technician. Sounds wonderful, right? Jazz up what you do so that if I am what I do, I want it to be as awesome as I can possibly make it. That's my identity. That is who I am. But compare that identity to 1 Peter. It's on your outline. Here's the Christian identity. Work out which one you prefer. 1 Peter, who are we? We're a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. We're a people for his possession. So that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Now there is your identity. If you're a Christian, that is the only identity you want. Can you imagine at your funeral, say you are an apple genius, and they read your eulogy and they go, oh, she was an apple genius. Who cares? Don't you want them to say, she loved the Lord. She is the Lord's possession. She's walking in the marvelous light of our wonderful Savior. That is what you want on the last day. Who cares if you're an apple genius or whatever? It won't last. Don't buy the identity lie about work. You are not what you do. That is not true. And so I want you to do a little favor for me. I want you to do a little stick it to the man project that I've come up with. You know, when you meet someone for the first time, there is a rule. You're always supposed to say, so what do you do? As if you're really interested in what they do, because what they do really defines who they are. Don't do it, okay? Next time you have that, I want you to just do anything else. Ask them what their hopes for life are. Imagine their response. Ask them what gets them up in the morning. Ask them the biggest challenge coming up this week. Don't say, oh, what do you do? Don't go down that path. And when they ask you, because they have to, because that's the rule, what do you do? Well, why don't you say, what do I do? Ah, I go to church. Just sort of drop the mic. Leave it there, leave it, leave it hanging. It's what you do, you do that, you go to church. Or if you want to sort of step it up a, mo- a notch, uh, I don't like to be defined by what I do. I like to be defined by who I know. Silence. They have to ask, right? How can they not ask? Oh, who do you know? Oh, I need to know who you know. Don't buy the identity lie. Okay, the teacher discovered you are not what you do. If you are what you do, When you die, it's all over. The toil ends with nothing. A bit of social disruption might be helpful for other people. False path number three. Work gives me meaning through personal fulfilment. Work is valuable because it fulfills me. You've heard that? I work, therefore I am. Now, this is kind of like the work equivalent of the expression, it's the journey, it's not the destination. I love my work, I get contentment, it's wonderful. Now, don't get me wrong, there is nothing wrong with finding joy in your work. I pray it's true for you. But we are so much past that in the Western world. Many just assume, I deserve to be happy in my work. I deserve to be fulfilled. I deserve to have a wonderful career, and if this career won't do it for me, I'll just leave and do another career, and I'll just keep doing that until I find a wonderful, fulfilling career. But for most of history, nobody's had that choice. For most of history, even in most of the world today, 
You don't have that choice. You don't pursue what will fulfill you. You do what you can do to feed yourself and to feed your family. Uh, Even the teacher explored this. He said, okay, I'm going to find my fulfillment in my work. And so he became as skillful as possible. Verse 21, he said, he was skillful at his work. He labored, says verse 11, and he achieves. But verse 22, he still concludes, what does a man get with all his work and all of his efforts under the sun? See, life is more than a fulfilling career. Verse 24, the teacher actually says, life is bigger than your work. There is nothing better for man than to eat and to drink and to enjoy his work. Uh, Work is just one part of it, of life. Now, you don't want to confuse what he's saying here with the party ethic of the Bible. You know, the party ethic, eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Now that, in the Bible, whenever you come across that, it's because people have given up on God. They're under the judgment of God. They say, you know what? There's no point. I'm just going to eat, drink, party for tomorrow we die. God can't do anything. So it's not the party ethic. It's contentment. There's nothing better than to eat and to drink and to enjoy life. The whole picture. And verse 24 stresses how this can happen. Verse 24, even this is from God's hand. Because... Who can eat and who can enjoy life apart from him? For to the man who is pleasing in his sight, he gives wisdom, knowledge and joy. Now, if you want to find contentment in your work, you won't do it if you're disconnected from God. That's not possible. Who gives joy? God gives joy. He's the one. And so there's this lovely little verse, verse 26, that tells you what life looks like if you do pursue work without God for your joy. Look at verse 26. To the sinner, God gives the task of gathering and accumulating. So you're made to work, God gives you work. You can gather and you can accumulate in order to give to the one who is pleasing in God's sight. This too is futile and a pursuit of the wind. Now this is a wonderful penetrating insight into humanity. This is where it's at. People are chasing the wind. Gathering and accumulating, gathering and accumulating, filling those palms. It's chasing the wind. We're made to work, but without God, work is futile. What's the point? Gather and accumulate and die. And we see that everywhere, all around us. The teacher goes on. He keeps reflecting upon work in chapter 5. The teacher says, if you want to find contentment, if you really do, if you want to find contentment in an age where work is cursed by sin then seek it in God. That's the place. And he also says, if you, if you really want to enjoy your work, if you are actually lucky enough to enjoy your work, then praise God for it, because that is not the expectation. So if you've got high expectations of work, if you haven't started your career yet, if, if you love your part-time job and you're living in a home and you don't have to pay all the bills yet, and work is wonderful because it means extras, don't set your level up there, because work is not up there. Work is down here, and if you enjoy your work, praise God, because not many people get to do that. It's worth being realistic and having those expectations. The best hope we have is contentment, godly contentment in this age, and that only comes from God. Well, that's the end of that path. Don't seek your contentment in work. That's futile, like the other two paths were as well. 
But the teachers hinted at where we can find joy, where we can find contentment, and it's in God. And we need to jump now to the New Testament, because if we want to know God, we need to look at Jesus. We need to look through the lens of Jesus. So flip to 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to use the Apostle Paul as our guide for the rest of today. 1 Corinthians 15, as you flip, you may have noticed that I have been very vague about what I think work is. What is work? I haven't defined it, have I? I've done that on purpose, because I want to see what you actually think. I suspect... When I say work, you think of your paid job, whatever it is. We've got a series on work. Ah, you mean my paid job. We think like that because we are products of our age. We think like that because we are in a particular time in history and a particular place. We've lived since the Industrial Revolution and so we are cogs in a machine. We're worker bees. We know our place. We've been told what it is. And so work is what you do to get paid. Too bad if you don't have a job, too bad if you're retired, too bad if you're a mum staying at home, because work is getting paid. That's the world's eyes. Now, I want us to step back from that. Work is much bigger than that. I remember I was in Ghana in a little church many years ago. We were overseas for a short-term mission. We're sitting in this little church, and a, a preacher had come back from the US. He'd been there for about two weeks on a training course, and he came back and he started preaching. And I was sort of going, oh, this will be fun. Oh, a little village, it'll be enjoyable. And he started preaching saying, right, you Ghanaians, you're all too greedy. You need to stop being greedy. And Heather and I were the only non-Ghanaians and we we're sort of shrinking down thinking, oh, man, if they're greedy, what about us? They live in tin shacks. You're all greedy. I was in Chicago, he said. And I sat in this family and every day they were away. Because at 6 a.m. they had to catch the train and they went off, rain, hail or shine. And they were in the city and they got back at 7 p.m. And by that time the kids were tired or in bed. They barely saw them. They didn't have family dinner. They barely talked to each other. Then they did it again the next day. And the next day, five days a week. And then they did it all over again the following week. And the eyes of the Ghanaians were just opening up going, sounds terrible. That's work. And the preacher was saying, yeah, money doesn't rain from the sky. And when you want that money... Those people are actually working really hard, but it's coming at a cost for them. They're actually giving up on all the great things that we have. And he was asking them to sort of change their perspective. Uh, You live in a community. You together go out to the rice fields. You together go and hunt. You together laugh and are happy. And when it rains, you sit around and and have the day together. You don't go outside. Who is the weirdest when we think about work? Is it the Ghanaians or is it us? When the Bible talks about work, it's talking about the Ghanaians. It's not talking about us and our nice, neat, paid jobs, as if that's the only work we ever do. Nine to five, five days a week. Thank you very much, industrial reforms, because I'll get four weeks' holidays this year. That's not work. Work is much bigger. And if we're going to understand God's work and our work in light of that, we have to step back as we think about work. Okay. So let's have a look at 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 20, what is God's work? Well, here's God's work. Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, there is a big work in history. Christ has been raised from the dead. But God hasn't finished working. So the next verse, God is making dead sinners come alive. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Now, this will be seen when the end comes. Verse 24 talks about the end coming. And when it does, here is the great end game. 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24, Jesus will hand over the kingdom to God, the Father. And when he abolishes all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. Here is God working through history until the very end. And what is God's work? He's bringing all things under Christ. That's what, he's, that's what he is doing. That is history. That is what is playing out. And we live under that grand picture. Anything we do, if it's not to be toil and futile, must fit into the grand picture. And so what work should we do? Well, let's take Paul's example. What work does Paul do? We know the Apostle Paul very well from our 2 Corinthians series. With this grand scheme in mind, what does Paul do? Verse 10, scan to verse 10. Verse 10, Paul says he works. What's his work? He proclaims Jesus. Now, we know that that was a hard work. We've seen him doing it in 2 Corinthians. Now, scan down to verse 58. What does he tell the Corinthians to do? In light of the grand scheme, in light of what he's doing, he tells the Corinthians, Therefore, my dear brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Here is the big picture of work. If you want to do work, it isn't futile, that doesn't pass away, that, that is not vain and in vain, then you need to work in God's plan. You need to connect into God's plan. His work is very clear. We Christians, we're actually called to be a part of that work. And so in a sense, it's very clear what we should do. We want to see God's kingdom advance. We want to see Jesus come back. We want to see sinners saved. We want to people, see people come to new life. That is our wonderful work. That work is not futile. Every single person that becomes a Christian is with us as a brother or sister into eternity. You can see how grand God's work is. It's way up here. That is God's wonderful work. Now, the teacher discovered that anything not done in connection with God is futile. If we are going to have futile work, uh, not futile work, fruitful work, then we have to be involved in his advancement of the kingdom. That is the only place we can be involved. Now, some Christians will find that really, really offensive. Because what it sounds like I'm saying is, well, you should be an elite Christian who doesn't you know, focus on their job, who isn't trying to advance their career, who spends much more time thinking about how they can see their friends know Jesus. It's like you don't even care about my day job. It's like you don't care if I become a specialist as a doctor or if I become a principal for, as a teacher. It's like you don't care. And in one sense, I want to say yes. Yes. Can you hear yourself if you don't agree? If work is broken, if sin is the cause, if Jesus is the solution, then why wouldn't you want to be on board with the only solution that means your work matters? If you want fruitful work, get on board with the gospel. If you believe Jesus is your Lord, if you believe everyone faces judgment, if you believe the way out is faith in Christ... Who would say, oh, I don't want the kingdom proclaimed. I'm busy advancing myself. Who would say that and call themselves a Christian? That is the greatest work to be involved in. So the teacher discovered we are not the sum of what we do. Work is not who I am. I will never find contentment and joy just in my work. 
Because it's all broken. Sin has marred it. I really want to be clear in a two-part series on work this week that what matters most is God's work in Christ. That is where you will see fruit, eternal fruit. And I want to ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe that that is the fruit to long for, the work of the gospel? If you do, then you won't say, well, I'm a doctor, I'm a teacher. You'll say, I'm a Christian doctor. I'm a Christian teacher. I'm a Christian garbage man. Or whatever it is. It's the Christian bit that defines who you are and how you do your job. Once you have that in place, once you understand the Christian bit is the most important bit, and then everything else fits in under, well, then we can do next week. Because next week is about being practical. But there's no point in being practical if you don't believe Jesus is Lord and King. Because then your work is gathering and accumulating. For tomorrow, you die. Put Jesus at the centre of work. And then next week, the Bible has heaps of great stuff to say. How do we work? What do we do? What is valuable work? What is not valuable work? And we'll be asking those questions next week. That means you have to come back next week. I'm sorry, it's part two of a part of, of a talk. It's of a series. So remember that. Christ's work through history is wonderful. We need to connect into that in order to get value out of the work we do. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for the wonderful work of the gospel. We praise you that that is not futile work, but is fruitful. That through history, people are being reconciled to yourself and will stand with you in eternity, doing the good works that you want us to do. Father, help us as we 